Good morning. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Good morning. Man, it's great to be here with you today. Uh, unlike most of the time when we extend the invitation to seniors to pick a song or two out, um, I, I had this hesitation, uh, not, not a hesitation in asking, but, but it took a while for the message to come back. And then uh, I got this message, said, well, I've been through the entire songbook and we have it down to 18 at this point, so... Um, <laughs> A very diligent process, and, and I want to say, Tess, you've already preached a beautiful sermon today. This is our Father's world. Somebody say amen. And uh, for uh, one of our graduates to affirm that, we appreciate it very, very much. When you open this book, you really never know what you're going to find. It is a powerful book. It is God's revelation to it. it it is what he intended for us to hear and for us to carry forward from this place. Sometimes, yes, you read it and you're comforted. Sometimes you read it and, and you just can't help but swell with the joy of seeing God at work in his world. And we, we're astounded by all that he can do. But there are also times when we, when we are called and challenged, things that kind of confront us there. And then, of course, there are the times that we read and we're very confused. How does this fit into the story of God? One of those books that uh, kind of gives us, a, a, we might call it the yo-yo book, the up, down, up, down, up, down book. Unfortunately, like uh, my yo-yo always used to do, you know, it went, it's going good for a while, but eventually it kind of gets a little lower and you can't quite, and, and that's what goes on. It is one of the most intriguing books in the Bible. But it also gives us some great inspiration and maybe a little bit different than so many other sections of the Bible where you have these heroes of faith and you think, I could never do that. You kind of run into the people in the judges and you, you, we may stand back and be aghast. <gasps> How could they? And yet, well, maybe if we're honest with ourselves, I might have made the same kind of mistakes in my own life. One of the most inspiring sections of the book of Judges is the story of Deborah and Barak and Jael. And we're going to read from parts of that story. So if you would open with me, and if you're at home, open up your Bible to Judges chapter 4, and let's read together from the opening of that chapter. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. But the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoim. That's pretty good, wasn't it? Okay, all right. Um, thank you very much. I appreciate it very much. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. The word cruelly there is an excessive kind of word. It's a word that's intended to make us kind of pull back in a little bit of horror. All the bad things you've heard about leaders that have done on conquered peoples. That's what the text is telling us about. And because of this cruel oppression, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah. Deborah, a prophet, the life, wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, 
from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River. And I will give him into your hands. As with every story in the Judges, it follows a relatively predictable and repeated cycle. A redemptive leader is raised up. Uh, death of that redeeming leader follows at some point. And from the death of the leader, the people fall into what is called they do evil in the sight of the Lord. What's different about this section of scripture other than the Samuel and the Kings and Chronicles is that as opposed to the king does evil in, it is the people who do evil in the sight of the Lord. They are Conquered or, or oppression comes upon them, and then they cry for help. And the cycle calls again, cry, comes about again because every single time that they cry to help the Lord, the Lord resent, sends some redemptive leader. But as with most times, just like us, when we fail, they, when they failed, this time particularly had an excuse. They said, and the writer makes sure that we understand it, that there are 900 chariots with iron-rimmed wheels. And this would scare anyone. First of all, a chariot gives an archer the opportunity to advance much closer than he normally would. And he can fire from a, a moving position, a skilled archer particularly. And then the other thing that you might be afraid of is that if I'm an infantryman and here comes a phalanx of, of uh, chariots... I get run over by the chariots. And of course, what the charioteer particularly likes to do is to shoot an arrow, kill somebody, and then run over them. There's a lot to be afraid of here. Israel was not well equipped. They did not have a strong central leadership, and that seems to be God's plan for them at this time. Instead, that they were to rely on him. They didn't have an armory that they went to to pick things up. And so when someone puts together enough resources, Jabin and his general Sisera, puts together enough resources to put together a military force like this, it makes an easy excuse. We do evil because there are bad guys. We do evil because we can't help it. There is something bigger going on than us. And we don't have the opportunity to stand up the way we would. If these 900 chariots were, weren't here, we would be glad to stand up. But, but God, there's 900 chariots. And they're not just any chariots. They're, and, and you've got a lot of different translate iron-rimmed wheels or iron-clad chariots, whatever it may be. It had to have been a fearsome and awesome sight coming over the hill. But the presence of great and terrible foe does not displace Deborah's courageous, and I'm going to use the word, courageous hope in the Lord. Deborah saw a better future. Deborah held on to God and said, no, 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 this is not what God wants for us. And let's continue reading. Judges chapter 4, picking up in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, who seems to be the guy that they rely on to kind of assemble an army, Up, go, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. 
The Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tamar with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sisera and his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And while Barak pursued the chariots, the army, to Harosheth HaGoyim. Let's see you get up here and call that name out. That's, that's all I have to say. The Lord is indeed going out before you. If you uh, go to Google and do image search for Deborah from the Bible, you have to be that specific. There are lots of Deborahs, but Deborah from the Bible, she's always in this position. I don't know what it is. She's always got her hand up, and I think it's this line. Go! Go, Barak! It's time now. The Lord is going to do something powerful. The Lord is going to do something wonderful. The Lord is going to do something great. And he wants to use all of us in that process. Go! Because the Lord is indeed going out before you. The song of Deborah and Barak that is in the following chapter gives us a little more vivid picture. It's not just that the army falls into confusion, but God has a unique how of how he's going to accomplish this great victory. There are two sections that refer to it. Judges chapter 5, we'll start with verse 4 and then we'll skip down a little later in the chapter. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook. Now again, you have to imagine the sound that 900 iron chariots make when they're coming down a hill, or particularly what they like to do is to come across a plain or a valley. But you, the Lord, when you came down, the earth shook, and the heavens poured, and the clouds Poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. Skipping down to verse 20, if you're in chapter 5. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. And what I think you need to imagine, and maybe if you were up early enough this morning, you saw a little lightning in the sky before the sun came out. But the idea is God is waging war and lightning is coming down. A storm has brewed along the Kishon River. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul be strong. Then, and I love this image, then thundered the horse's hooves. It's not the hooves of Sisera. It is the hooves of God's powerful army that is coming to the aid of his people, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. One cannot help but be vividly reminded of God's defeat of Pharaoh's army. And we might say many years ago, but this isn't a hundred, maybe more, maybe less, excuse me, maybe less years before, that God defeats Pharaoh's army without Israel lifting a single hand They passed through the open Red Sea and Pharaoh charged his chariots down through uh, that same opening only to discover that God was holding it back for his people, not for his people's enemy. And so whether you see it in Cecil B. DeMille's, don't we love? And and, uh, or maybe the the exodus of gods and kings, uh, whatever image you see of it. 
The way that God conquered the enemy is a powerful, powerful thing. It may be even that the words of this song uh, may have been the inspiring uh, element to Peter Jackson's uh, image of what he would do in his movie, not the book, but his movie called The Fellowship of the Ring, the first in the trilogy where Arwen is bearing Frodo on horse. He's been pierced by a dark sword and he is dying. And she ha- the Nazgul, the dark riders, come to confront her at a river. And the river, she calls the river to come and fight for her. And the river, if you remember the scene, you may have to go back a little while, the river comes down not just as water, but horses surging down the stream and they wipe away the enemy. As chapter 4 and chapter 5 unfold, chapter 5 is a song that tells us basically the same kind of things that go on in chapter 4. But as with most songs, we get a a little bit more of the color. We get a little bit more of the energy. We see a little bit more of of the power that's going on when we sing it. So in chapter 5, we still have this kind of confusion. Because at one level, the writer of Judges is keeping us in a bit of a confusing unpredictability as we question who will be God's deliverer. In every other story of the judges, and again, there haven't been that many by the time we get to chapter 4, we have a very clear person. Here is who God calls, and they act, and we follow them, and we are redeemed. In chapters 4 and 5, we're introduced to three major characters. Deborah who is called the judge, but it seems to be that she's a little bit different kind of judge. She sits under... By the way, I don't know how a good judge you have to be to have the tree named for you, right? But they had the tree of Deborah, and she sat under the tree of Deborah, and people came to her to get their disputes settled. But she was also not just an arbiter. She was someone that God spoke to, and this connects her directly to the rest of the judges in the book of Judges. And in fact, we'll connect her to the kings and the prophets that follow after her. God speaks to them and directs them, and she is unafraid because she, her heart continues to be shaped by the hope of a peaceful homeland for God's people. She continues to be shaped by God's promise that he'll bring them into this flourishing land and that it will be theirs forever. And because she receives a vision from God or a message from God, however we want to quantify it, she is willing to stand up and speak. But we're also led to identify Barak. Barak who says, I'm not going if you don't go with me. And again, if you read different versions of the text, what you discover is that there's a little bit different ways of approaching it. And I don't think it's at all that Barak is is standing back and quivering in fear. Oh, I'm not going if you don't come. But he's saying, you delivered the message. You're the one that God is speaking through. I I don't want to go without the messenger of God with me. And we didn't have time today. One of the great junior high boy Bible studies is from Judges chapter 4. Because you have poor old Sisera running away from his chariot. and He happens to go to the wrong tent. He goes to Jael's tent. And he asks for water and she gives him milk and kind of settles him down. Good. The song says not only milk, but it curds in the milk. Oh, he's, he's sleeping good. It's like 
I, when I really need to sleep, I take an, an Advil PM, and boy, it's out, right? And, and, and so she gives him his Advil PM, and he goes out. But in this peaceful moment, J.L. then, and, and, and it's, it's, it's wonderful the way the text says it, in her left hand, she takes the tent stake, and in her tent stake, there we go, the tent stake, and in her right hand, she takes the mallet just want to be sure you know, the mallet is not the typical tool in the woman's uh, repertoire. This is not a meat grinder. This is, this is the, the mallet. And she places it to his temple and drives it through his temple. In chapter 4, Deborah will say, if I go with you, uh, the glory of, of defeating Sisera will not be used. yours. It will be a woman. And to a certain extent, we think, ah, oh, of course, Deborah's the woman. But Deborah is not the woman. J.L. is the woman, a foreigner in reality, a foreigner who's moved away from the people but who God uses in this moment to bring about his redemption from the people. Yes, the army's been defeated, but particularly in these days, it was so important that the leader be identified and driven out. But as with all stories from the Bible, and, and let's go a step further as with all stories in our lives, the primary actor is still the Lord our God. Somebody say amen. It is the Lord our God that inspires Deborah. It is the Lord our God that goes with them. It is the Lord our God that causes this storm, brings forth this storm that creates, as opposed to a, a firm plane for Sisera's 900 chariots to run over the Israelites who creates a flood, it both bogs them down and washes them away and allows an infantry to completely overwhelm them. So let us affirm a lesson that I want to speak into for this story today. That God always uses those who hope in Him. God always uses those whose hope in Him drives them to participate with Him. God will always use those who keep their hope and their foundation in Him and He will use them because they are driven to participate with God. Hope is never timid. Hope is never cowardly. If, if you identify the emotion as you sit and quaver in the darkness, oh, I sure hope it turns out okay, you're actually wishing you're not hoping by any biblical definition of the word. Instead, it was Deborah who saw hope for what God could do. And I want to say this. It was 10,000 men from Issachar and Nebulum who said, If Barak calls us to go, we don't care what the enemy is. We believe God can do something. We hope in what God can do. And they went with him. They participated with him. And none of their names are recorded. Any more than, than the way that you step up and your hope for God and to trying and bringing in his, his greater and more wonderful vision of what the world should be, of what your life should be, of what your family should be, what your workplace should be, what your neighborhood should be. Your name may never be recorded for that. But God will know. And it will make a difference. 
So the question today that I want to bring to you, and I'll close with this question. What are your iron chariots? What are the things that you point at and say, yes, God, I would, I would do more if it weren't for that. Yes, God, I would hope more in you if it weren't for this. Yes, God, I would be more of the person that you want me to do except for this. Peter did a great job of enumerating the challenges that he's faced, not just Tess, but Tess's generation. I remember growing up as a child in Temple, Texas, we're about 30 miles from uh, Fort Hood, which at that time, and I think still, is the largest military base in the United States. I think it's now the largest military base in the world. There used to be a Russian one, but that's all fallen apart. And in our school, we would do these things called fallout drills. You don't do those anymore. We would get under the desk, not because there was a fire, not because there was a shooter, but because we were anticipating that there might be a nuclear attack. The year I was born was when Khrushchev was trying to get nuclear missiles onto Cuba. And I think they said we would have 30 minutes warning if one of those was launched. And we could have said, oh, the fear is too great. What I pretty quickly figured out is that if the nuclear bomb was anywhere close to as powerful as they said it was, we weren't going to have time to hide under the desk, nor would it do any good, because Fort Hood would be on the target list and going to be gone. So what's the use of hoping? What's the use of straining to be what God wants us to be if we're just going to be vaporized? What's the use of longing for things greater than where you are if the world's simply going to be at the whim of a virus. What are your iron chariots? And how does God call us, no matter what the chariot looks like or how it's described or how powerful it is, God calls us to say exactly what the song say, said, this is our Father's world and we will not be shaken. We have a living hope that is greater than any brokenness this world presents us. Amen. And greater than any sin that is inflicted on this world. A living hope. A sure and promised future. And I want to go so far as to say a present. The final stanza of the song in Judges 5 reads this way. So perish all your enemies, O Lord. Um, I think I like the translation here. It's not a passive thing. May your enemies perish, but it instead is an active thing. Lord, act to defeat your enemies. If Jesus Christ and the resurrection aren't living into that, then I don't know what is. But may your friends be like the sun as it rises in its might. Tess, I just want to tweak the words just a little bit for you. So defeat every evil that confronts her, Lord. And as she holds to her, lift her like the sun as it rises in its might.
You were despised, you were rejected, Lord, those who passed by, even a very decades from the side. Such was the suffering you bore for us. Led like a lamb, a lamb to the slaughter, you spoke not a word, but chose to be silent, though you did no wrong. Nor was deceitfulness found in you. Yet by your wounds our salvation has come. Yet by your suffering our freedom is won. For God has highly exalted your name. He has enthroned you on somebody's moved the furniture a little even a little bit right you you keep kind of noticing that that is not where it normally is and so in that process we right keep noticing how different everything is and so our minds just constantly turn to the this isn't the same this isn't right am i supposed to put mute how do you do the i forget the shortcut right all of those kinds of things that kind of clutter up our minds day to day to day trying to make the adjustment 
And one of the things that I find to be very comforting and very reassuring and centering is the fact that we continue to do something that we've done, some of us for many, many years, in taking um, communion each week. And that draws us back to, to, to center our thoughts on what really our lives is based on, and that is Jesus himself. This morning I'd like to read uh, from John 14, uh, a passage that's recorded um, the night that Jesus uh, met with his disciples when he was facing death itself, um, had, had a lot of right, things going through his mind. He um, met with them, began this uh, memorial that, that we uh, take place, uh, take part in even today. Uh, in John 14, he gave them these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life here on earth, for the way that he showed us your love for us, the way that he showed us how you intend for us to live uh, as humans, to, to live perfectly aligned to your will. Lord, we thank you uh, for the way that he blessed those around him, Lord, we thank you for the way that he honored you and all the things that he did. Lord, we thank you that he gave his very life for us so that we might be restored and made right in your eyes. We ask that you would be with us now as we take this bread. Help it to remind us of Jesus. Help it to strengthen our resolve to live more in tune with your word as you would have us to live. It's in his name we pray. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup... You, procl you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That promise that Jesus made that he is the way and the truth and the life um, is something that we hold to as we take this. This is our hope uh, for our own future, right, is that Jesus has become that way back to the Father through what he's done for us. And so as we uh, take this cup... Uh, Let's uh, remember that together. Let's pray. Dear God, again, we thank you for Jesus, for his willingness to offer his very life on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that uh, his blood has uh, atoned for our own sin. Uh, we're sorry for those things. We are truly grateful that he has restored us to you. And we ask that as we take this, that again, we would be uh, strengthened and inspired and um, encouraged to, to live more in line with the way Jesus lived. We ask it all in his name.
Father and our God, we, we come to you because you are the one place, the one unmovable stone, the foundation that never shakes. We come to you um, all the time, but Father, we, we grasp for your presence. We grasp for your hand of assurance. We long for your presence and peace and comfort when life does things that are utterly and completely senseless. We live in a broken world where disease and sickness and death still rears its ugly head. We lift Betty up to you and we pray for her healing. We lift the Millers and the Moncriefs up to you. We ask that they would turn to you in their hour of sorrow. We lift the bargers up to you. Mindy, Rick, the boys, 
entire family. There's no better hands that we want to place them in. There are no surer hands to bring comfort and, if it cannot be made sense of, to at least be the great shoulder to cry on and the one to whom they can cry out with their grief and pain and questions. And you are open to all those things. Father, may our prayers be taken by you and may they become a ministry to those families. Guide us in how you would have us be your presence and your love your faithfulness in each of these situations. Finally, Father, we proclaim that these kinds of broken situations are not the last word. The resurrection is the last word. And we look forward to the day when you will bring Jesus back and you will recreate us and your world For there's no more sin, no more death, no more darkness, but only your love and your light. And so maybe more than usual, we join with 2,000 years of Christians who say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. And we all say. At the beginning of the song, Deborah and Bayrak say, when the people offer willingly themselves, when the people offer willingly, offer themselves, then we say, praise the Lord. What's interesting is sometimes we think that, what am I going to give God? What am I going to give God? But it is always, whatever we give to God, is in response to the greater gift that he has already given us. Somebody say amen. I don't know what you're offering God at this time. I don't know the ways in which you're being used. And and what's amazing is I look out at you and I know stories of the way you're being used by God in this particular situation to be his ministry and his love, his faithfulness in so many lives. I just want to ask you before you do the next thing that you stop just for a minute and say, Lord, I'm offering this action, this moment, even if it's a a wave hello to your neighbor, if you have a moment, say, Lord, I'm offering this up to you because I want it to bring you glory. What are you going to offer God? Maybe more importantly, what are you going to say thank you to God for what he has already given you? Won't you come as we stand and as we sing?